Chapters twenty two through twenty four of The Masquerader. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Masquerader by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter twenty two. After his interview with Eve, Loder retired to the study and spent the remaining hours of the day and the whole span of the evening in work. At one o'clock, still feeling fresh in mind and body, he dismissed Greening and passed into Chilcote's bedroom. The interview with Eve, though widely different from the one he had anticipated, had left him stimulated and alert. In the hours that followed it there had been an added anxiety to put his mind into harness, an added gratification in finding it answered to the rain. A pleasant sense of retrospection settled upon him as he slowly undressed, and a pleasant sense of interest touched him as, crossing to the dressing-table, he caught sight of Chilcote's engagement-book taken with other things from the suit he had changed at dinner-time and carefully laid aside by Renwick. He picked it up and slowly turned the pages. It always held the suggestion of a lottery, this dipping into another man's engagements and drawing a prize or a blank. It was a sensation that even custom had not dulled. At first he turned the pages slowly, then by degrees his fingers quickened. Beyond the fact that this present evening was free he knew nothing of his promised movements. The abruptness of Chilcote's arrival at Clifford's Inn in the afternoon had left no time for superfluous questions. He skimmed the writing with a touch of interested haste, then all at once he paused and smiled. "'Big enough for a tombstone,' he said below his breath as his eyes rested on a large blue cross. Then he smiled again and held the book to the light. "'Dine, thirty-three, Cadogan Gardens, eight o c. talk with L.' he read, still speaking softly to himself. He stood for a moment pondering on the entry, then once more his glance reverted to the cross. Evidently met it to be seen, he mused, but why the deuce isn't he more explicit? As he spoke a look of comprehension suddenly crossed his face, and the puzzled frown between his eyebrows cleared away. With a feeling of satisfaction he remembered Lakeley's frequent and pressing suggestion that he should dine with him at Cadogan Gardens and discuss the political outlook. Lakeley must have written during his absence, and Chilcote, having marked the engagement, felt no further responsibility. The invitation could scarcely have been verbal, as Chilcote he knew had lain very low in the five days of his return home. So he argued as he stood with the book still open in his hands, the blue cross staring imperatively from the white paper, and from the argument rose thoughts and suggestions that seethed in his mind long after the lights had been switched off, long after the fire had died down and he had been left wrapped in darkness in the great canopied bed. And so it came about that he took his second false step. Once, during the press of the next morning's work, it crossed his mind to verify his convictions by a glance at the directory but for once the strong wish that evolves a thought conquered his caution. His work was absorbing. The need of verification seemed very small. He let the suggestion pass. At seven o'clock he dressed carefully. His mind was full of Lakely and of the possibilities the night might hold, for more than once before the weight of the St. George's Gazette, with Lakely at its back, had turned the political scales to be marked by him as a coming man, was at any time a favorable portent. To be singled out by him at the present juncture was momentous. A thrill of expectancy, almost of excitement, passed through him as he surveyed his appearance preparatory to leaving the house. Passing downstairs he moved at once to the hall door, but almost as his hand touched it he halted, attracted by a movement on the landing above him. Turning he saw Eve. She was standing quite still, looking down upon him as she had looked once before. As their eyes met she changed her position hastily. "'You are going out?' she asked, and it struck Loder quickly that there was a suggestion, a shadow of disappointment in the tone of her voice. Moved by the impression he responded with unusual promptness. "'Yes,' he said, "'I'm dining out, dining with Lakely.' 
She watched him intently while he spoke. Then, as the meaning of his words reached her, her whole face brightened. "'With Mr. Lakely,' she said. "'Oh, I'm glad, very glad. It is quite, quite another step.' She smiled with a warm, impulsive touch of sympathy. Loder, looking up at her, felt his senses stir. At the sound of her words his secret craving for success quickened to stronger life. The man whose sole incentive lies within may go forward coldly and successfully, but the man who grasps a double inspiration, who even unconsciously is impelled by another force, has a stronger impetus for attack, a surer, more vital hewing power. Still watching her, he answered instinctively, Yes, he said slowly, a long step and with a smile of farewell he turned, opened the door, and passed into the road. The thrill of that one moment was still warm as he reached Cadogan Gardens and mounted the steps of number 33, so vitally warm that he paused for an instant before pressing the electric bell. Then at last, dominated by anticipation, he turned and raised his hand. The action was abrupt, and it was only as his fingers pressed the bell that a certain unexpectedness, a certain want of suitability in the aspect of the house struck him. The door was white, the handle and knocker were of massive silver. The first seemed a disappointing index of Lakeley's private taste, the second a ridiculous temptation to needy humanity. He looked again at the number of the house, but it stared back at him convincingly. Then the door opened. So keen was his sense of unfitness that, still trying to fuse his impression of Lakely with the idea of silver door fittings, he stepped into the hall without the usual preliminary question. Suddenly realizing the necessity, he turned to the servant, but the man forestalled him. "'Will you come into the white room, sir? And may I take your coat?' The smooth certainty of the man's manner surprised him. It held another savor of disappointment seeming as little in keeping with the keen, business-like Lakely as did the house. Still struggling with his impression, he allowed himself to be relieved of his hat and coat, and in silence ushered up the shallow staircase. As the last step was reached, it came to him again to mention his host's name, but simultaneously with the suggestion the servant stepped forward with a quick silent movement and threw open a door. Mr. Chilcote, he announced in a subdued, discreet voice. Loder's first impression was of a room that seemed unusually luxurious, soft, and shadowed. Then all impression of inanimate things left him suddenly. For the fraction of a second he stood in the doorway while the room seemed emptied of everything except a figure that raised slowly from a couch before the fire at sound of Chilcote's name. Then, with a calmness that to himself seemed incredible, he moved forward into the room. He might, of course, have beaten a retreat and obviated many things, but life is full of might-have-beens, and retreat never presents itself agreeably to a strong man. His impulse was to face the difficulty, and he acted on the impulse. Lillian had risen slowly, and as he neared her she held out her hand. Jack! she exclaimed softly. How sweet of you to remember! The voice and words came to him with great distinctness, and as they came one uncertainty passed forever from his mind, the question as to what relation she and Chilcote held to each other. With the realization came the thought of Eve, and in the midst of his own difficulty his face hardened. Lillian ignored the coldness. Taking his hand she smiled. "'You're unusually punctual,' she said. "'But your hands are cold. Come closer to the fire.' Loder was not sensible that his hands were cold, but he suffered himself to be drawn forward. One end of the couch was in firelight, the other in shadow. By a fortunate arrangement of chance Lillian selected the brighter end for herself and offered the other to her guest. With a quick sense of respite he accepted it. At least he could sit secure from detection while they temporized with fate. For a moment they sat silent, then Lillian stirred. "'Won't you smoke?' she asked. Everything in the room seemed soft and enervating, the subdued glow of the fire, the smell of roses that hung about the air, and last of all 
Lillian's slow, soothing voice. With a sense of oppression he stiffened his shoulders and sat straighter in his place. No, he said, I don't think I shall smoke. She moved nearer to him. Dear Jack, she said pleadingly, don't say you're in a bad mood. Don't say you want to postpone again. She looked up at him and laughed a little in mock consternation. Loder was at a loss. Another silence followed while Lillian waited. Then she frowned suddenly and rose from the couch. Like many indolent people she possessed a touch of obstinacy, and now that her triumph over Chilcote was obtained, now that she had vindicated her right to command him, her original purpose came uppermost again. Cold or interested, indifferent or attentive, she intended to make use of him. She moved to the fire and stood looking down into it. Jack, she began gently, a really amazing thing has happened to me. I do so want you to throw some light. Loder said nothing. There was a fresh pause while she softly smoothed the silk embroidery that edged her gown. Then once more she looked up at him. Did I ever tell you, she began, that I was once in a railway accident? On a funny little Italian railway centuries before I met you? She laughed softly, and with a pretty air of confidence turned from the fire and resumed her seat. Astrup had caught a fever in Florence, and I was rushing away for fear of the infection when our stupid little train ran off the rails near Pistoria and smashed itself up. Fortunately we were within half a mile of a village, so we weren't quite bereft. The village was impossibly like a toy village, and the accommodation what one would expect in a Noah's Ark but it was all absolutely picturesque. I put up at the little inn with my maid and Coco. Coco was such a sweet dog, a white poodle. I was tremendously keen on poodles that year. She stopped and looked thoughtfully towards the fire. But to come to the point of the story, Jack, the toy village had a boy doll. She laughed again. He was an Englishman, and the first person to come to my rescue on the night of the smash-up. He was staying at the Noah's Ark Inn, and after that first night I, he, we, oh, Jack, haven't you any imagination? Her voice sounded petulant and sharp. The man who is indifferent to the recital of an old love affair implies the worst kind of listener. I believe you aren't interested, she added in another and more reproachful tone. He leaned forward. You're wrong there, he said slowly. I'm deeply interested. She glanced at him again. His tone reassured her, but his words left her uncertain. Chilcote was rarely emphatic. With a touch of hesitation she went on with her tale. As I told you, he was the first to find us, to find me, I should say, for my stupid maid was having hysterics further up the line, and Coco was lost. I remember the first thing I did was to send him in search of Coco. Notwithstanding his position, Loder found occasion to smile. Did he succeed? He said dryly. Succeed? Oh, yes, he succeeded. She also smiled involuntarily. Poor Coco was stowed away under the luggage van, and after quite a lot of trouble he pulled him out, and when it was all done the dog was quite unhurt and livelier than ever but the Englishman had his finger almost bitten through. Coco was a dear, but his teeth and temper were both very sharp. She laughed once more in soft amusement. Loder was silent for a second. Then he too laughed, Chilcote's short sarcastic laugh. And you tied up the wound, I suppose. She glanced up, half displeased. We were both staying at the little inn, she said, as though no further explanation could be needed. Then again, her manner changed. She moved imperceptibly nearer and touched his right hand. His left, which was farther away from her, was well in the shadow of the cushions. "'Jack,' she said caressingly, "'it isn't to tell you this stupid old story that I've brought you here. It's really to tell you a sort of sequel.' She stroked his hand gently once or twice. "'As I say, I met this man and we—we had an affair.' you understand? Then we quarreled, quarreled quite badly, and I came away. I remembered him rather longer than I remember most people. 
he was one of those dogged individuals who stick in one's mind, but he has stayed in mine for another reason. Again she looked up. He has stayed because you helped to keep him there. You know how I have sometimes put my hands over your mouth and told you that your eyes reminded me of someone else? Well, that someone else was my Englishman. But you mustn't be jealous. He was a horrid, obstinate person, and you... Well, you know what I think of you. She pressed his hand. But to come to the end of the story, I never saw this man since that long-ago time until... until the night of Blanche's party. She spoke slowly to give full effect to her words. Then she waited for his surprise. But the result was not what she expected. He said nothing, and, with an abrupt movement, he drew his hand from between hers. "'Aren't you surprised?' she asked at last, with a delicate note of reproof. He started slightly, as if recalled to the necessity of the moment. "'Surprised?' he said. "'Why should I be surprised? One person more or less at a big party isn't astonishing. Besides, you expect a man to turn up sooner or later in his own country. Why should I be surprised?' She lay back luxuriously. "'Because, my dear boy,' she said softly, "'it's a mystery. It's one of those fascinating mysteries that come once in a lifetime.' Loder made no movement. "'You must explain,' he said very quietly. Lillian smiled. "'That's just what I want to do. When I was in my tent on the night of Blanche's party, a man came to be gazed for. He came just like anybody else, and laid his hands upon the table. He had strong, thin hands like, well, rather like yours, but he wore two rings on the third finger of his left hand, a heavy signet ring and a plain gold one. Loder moved his hand imperceptibly till the cushion covered it. Lillian's words caused him no surprise, scarcely even any trepidation. He felt now that he had expected them, even waited for them all along. "'I asked him to take off his rings,' she went on, and just for a second he hesitated. I could feel him hesitate. Then he seemed to make up his mind, for he drew them off. He drew them off, Jack and guess what I saw. Do guess. For the first time Loder involuntarily drew back into his corner of the couch. I never guess, he said brusquely. Then I'll tell you. His hands were the hands of my Englishman. The rings covered the scar made by Coco's teeth. I knew it instantly, the second my eyes rested on it. It was the same scar that I had bound up dozens of times, that I had seen healed before I left Santa Solare. And you, what did you do? Loder felt it singularly difficult and unpleasant to speak. Ah, that's the point. That's where I was stupid and made my mistake. I should have spoken to him on the moment, but I didn't. You know how one sometimes hesitates? Afterwards it was too late. But you saw him afterwards, in the rooms? Loder spoke unwillingly. No, I didn't. That's the other point. I didn't see him in the rooms, and I haven't seen him since. Directly he was gone I left the tent. I pretended to be hungry and bored, but though I went through every room he was nowhere to be found. Once she hesitated and laughed again. Once I thought I had found him, but it was only you, you as you stood in that doorway with your mouth and chin hidden by Leonard Kane's head. Wasn't it a quaint mistake? There was an uncertain pause. Then Loder, feeling the need of speech, broke the silence suddenly. "'Where do I come in?' he asked abruptly. "'What am I wanted for?' "'To help throw light on the mystery. I've seen Blanche's list of people, and there wasn't a man I couldn't place. No outsider ever squeezes through Blanche's door. I have questioned Bobby Blessington, but he can't remember who came to the tent last, and Bobby was supposed to have kept count. She spoke in deep scorn, but almost immediately the scorn faded, and she smiled again. "'Now that I've explained, Jack,' she added, "'what do you suggest?' Then, for the first time, Loder knew what his presence in the room really meant, and at best the knowledge was disconcerting. 
it is not every day that a man is called upon to unearth himself. Suggest, he repeated blankly. Yes, I'd rather have your idea of the affair than anybody else's. You are so dear and sarcastic and keen that you can't help getting straight at the middle of a fact. When Lillian wanted anything, she could be very sweet. She suddenly dropped her half-petulant tone. She suddenly ceased to be a spoiled child. With a perfectly graceful movement, she drew quite close to Loder and slid gently to her knees. This is an attitude that few women can safely assume. It requires all the attributes of youth, suppleness, and a certain buoyant ease. But Lillian never acted without justification, and as she leaned towards Loder, her face lifted, her slight figure and pale hair softened by the firelight, she made a picture that it would have been difficult to criticize. But the person who should have appreciated it stared steadily beyond it to the fire. His mind was absorbed by one question, the question of how he might reasonably leave the house before discovery became assured. Lillian, attentively watchful of him, saw the uneasy look, and her own face fell. But as she looked an inspiration came to her, a remembrance of many interviews with Chilcote smoothed and facilitated by the timely use of tobacco. "'Jack,' she said softly, "'before you say another word I insist on your lighting a cigarette.' She leaned forward, resting against his knee. At her words Loder's eyes left the fire. His attention was suddenly needed for a new and more immediate difficulty. "'Thanks,' he said quickly. "'I have no wish to smoke.' "'It isn't a matter of what you wish, but of what I say.' She smiled. She knew that Chilcote, with a cigarette between his lips, was infinitely more tractable than Chilcote sitting idle, and she had no intention of ignoring the knowledge. But Loder caught her at her words. "'Before you ordered me to smoke,' he said, you told me to give you some advice. Your first command must have prior claim. He grasped unhesitatingly at the less risky scheme. She looked up at him. You're always nicer when you smoke, she persisted caressingly. Light a cigarette and give me one. Loder's mouth became set. No, he said. We'll stick to this advice business. It interests me. Yes, afterwards. No, now. You want to find out why this Englishman from Italy was at your sister's party, and why he disappeared? There are times when a malignant obstinacy seems to affect certain people. The only answer Lillian made was to pass her hand over Loder's waistcoat and, feeling his cigarette case, to draw it from the pocket. He affected not to see it. Do you think he recognized you in that tent? He insisted desperately. She held out the case. Here are your cigarettes. You know we're always more social when we smoke. In the short interval, while she looked up into his face, several ideas passed through Loder's mind. He thought of standing up quickly and so regaining his advantage. He wondered quickly whether one hand could possibly suffice for the taking out and lighting of two cigarettes. Then all need for speculation was pushed suddenly aside. Lillian, looking into his face, saw his fresh look of disturbance, and from long experience again changed her tactics. Laying the cigarette case on the couch, she put one hand on his shoulder, the other on his left arm. Hundreds of times this caressing touch had quieted Chilcote. "'Dear old boy,' she said soothingly, her hand moving slowly down his arm. In a flash of understanding the consequences of this position came to him, Action was imperative at whatever risk. With an abrupt gesture he rose. The movement was awkward. He got to his feet precipitately. Lillian drew back, surprised and startled, catching involuntarily at his left hand to steady her position. Her fingers grasped at, then held his. He made no effort to release them. With a dogged acknowledgment he admitted himself worsted. How long she stayed immovable, holding his hand, neither of them knew. The process of a woman's instinct is so subtle, so obscure, that it would be futile to apply to it the commonplace test of time. She kept her hold tenaciously, 
as though his fingers possessed some peculiar virtue. Then at last she spoke. "'Rings, Jack,' she said very slowly. And under the two short words a whole world of incredulity and surmise made itself felt. Loder laughed. At the sound she dropped his hand and rose from her knees. What her suspicions, what her instincts were, she could not have clearly defined, but her action was unhesitating. Without a moment's uncertainty she turned to the fireplace, pressed the electric button, and flooded the room with light. There is no force so demoralizing as unexpected light. Loder took a step backward, his hand hanging unguarded by his side, and Lillian, stepping forward, caught it again before he could protest. Lifting it quickly, she looked scrutinizingly at the two rings. All women jumped conclusions, and it is extraordinary how seldom they jump short. Seeing only what Lillian saw, knowing only what she knew, no man would have staked a definite opinion. But the other sex takes a different view. As she stood gazing at the rings, her thoughts and her conclusions sped through her mind like arrows, all aimed and all tending towards one point. She remembered the day when she and Chilcote had talked of doubles, her skepticism and his vehemence defense of the idea, his sudden interest in the book Other Men's Shoes, and his anathema against life and its irksome round of duties. She remembered her own first convinced recognition of the eyes that had looked at her in the doorway of her sister's house, and last of all, she remembered Chilcote's unaccountable avoidance of the same subject of likenesses when she had mentioned it yesterday driving through the park, and with it his unnecessarily curt repudiation of his former opinions. She reviewed each item, then she raised her head slowly and looked at Loder. He was prepared for the glance and met it steadily. In the long moment that her eyes searched his face, it was she and not he who changed color. She was the first to speak. "'You were the man whose hands I saw in the tent,' she said. She made the statement in her usual soft tones, but a slight tremor of excitement underran her voice. Poodles, Persian kittens, even crystal gazing balls seemed very far away in face of this tangible, fabulous present interest. "'You are not Jack Chilcote,' she said very slowly. "'You are wearing his clothes and speaking in his voice. But you are not Jack Chilcote.' Her tone quickened with a touch of excitement. "'You needn't keep silent and look at me,' she said. "'I know quite well what I am saying, though I don't understand it, though I have no real proof.' She paused momentarily disconcerted by her companion's silent and steady gaze, and in the pause a curious and unexpected thing occurred. Loder laughed suddenly, a full, confident, reassured laugh. All the web that the past half-hour had spun about him, all the intolerable sense of an impending crash, lifted suddenly. He saw his way clearly, and it was Lillian who had opened his eyes. Still looking at her, he smiled, a smile of reliant determination such as Chilcote had never worn in his life, and with a calm gesture he released her hand. The greatest charm of woman is her imagination, he said quietly. Without it there would be no color in life. We would come into and drop out of it with the same uninteresting tone of drab reality. He paused and smiled again. At his smile Lillian involuntarily drew back the color deepening in her cheeks. "'Why do you say that?' she asked. He lifted his head. With each moment he felt more certain of himself. "'Because that is my attitude,' he said. "'As a man I admire your imagination, but as a man I fail to follow your reasoning.' The words and the tone both stung her. "'Do you realize the position?' she asked sharply. "'Do you realize that whatever your plans are, I can spoil them?' Loder still met her eyes. "'I realize nothing of the sort,' he said. "'Then you admit that you are not Jack Chilcote?' "'I neither deny nor admit. My identity is obvious. I can get twenty men to swear to it at any moment that you like, 
The fact that I haven't worn rings till now will scarcely interest them. But you do admit to me that you are not Jack? I deny nothing and admit nothing. I still offer my congratulations. Upon what? The same possession, your imagination. Lillian stamped her foot. Then by a quick effort she conquered her temper. Prove me to be wrong, she said with a fresh touch of excitement. Take off your rings and let me see your hand. With a deliberate gesture, Loder put his hand behind his back. I never gratify childish curiosity, he said with another smile. Again a flash of temper crossed her eyes. Are you sure, she said, that it's quite wise to talk like that? Loder laughed again. Is that a threat? Perhaps. Then it's an empty one. Why? Before replying, he waited a moment, looking down at her. I conclude, he began quietly, that your idea is to spread this wild, improbable story, to ask people to believe that John Chilcote, whom they seen before him, is not John Chilcote, but somebody else. Now you'll find that a harder task than you imagine. This is a skeptical world, and people are absurdly fond of their own eyesight. We are all journalists nowadays, we all want facts. The first thing you will be asked for is your proof. And what does your proof consist of? The circumstance that John Chilcote, who has always despised jewelry, has lately taken to wearing rings? Your own statement, unattended by any witnesses, that with those rings off his finger bears a scar belonging to another man. No, on close examination I scarcely imagined that your case would hold. He stopped, fired by his own logic. The future might be Chilcote's, but the present was his, and this present, with its immeasurable possibilities, had been rescued from catastrophe. No, he said again, when you get your proof perhaps we'll have another talk. But till then... Till then? She looked up quickly, but almost at once her question died away. The door had opened, and the servant who had admitted Loder stood in the opening. Dinner is served he announced in his deferential voice. End of chapter 22 Chapter 23 And Loder dined with Lillian Astro. We live in an age when society expects, even exacts much. He dined not through bravado and not through cowardice, but because it seemed the obvious, the only thing to do. To him a scene of any description was distasteful. To Lillian it was unknown. In her world people loved or hated, were spiteful or foolish, were even quixotic or dishonorable, but they seldom made scenes. Loder tacitly saw and tacitly accepted this. Possibly they ate extremely little during the course of the dinner and talked extraordinarily much on subjects that interested neither but the main point at least was gained. They dined. The conventionalities were appeased. The silent watchful servants who waited on them were given no food for comment. The fact that Loder left immediately after dinner, the fact that he paused on the doorstep after the hall door had closed behind him and drew a long deep breath of relief, held only an individual significance and therefore did not count. On reaching Chilcote's house he passed at once to the study and dismissed Greening for the night. But scarcely had he taken advantage of his solitude by settling into an armchair and lighting a cigar than Renwick, displaying an unusual amount of haste and importance, entered the room carrying a letter. Seeing Loder he came forward at once. Mr. Fraid's man brought this, sir, he explained. He was most particular to give it into my hands making sure twould reach you. He's waiting for an answer, sir. Loder rose and took the letter, a quick thrill of speculation and interest springing across his mind. During his time of banishment he had followed the political situation with feverish attention, insupportably chafed by the desire to share in it, apprehensively chilled at the thought of Chilcote's possible behavior. He knew that in the comparatively short interval since Parliament had risen no act of aggression had marked the Russian occupation of Meshed, but he also knew that Fraid and his followers looked askance 
at that great power's amiable attitude, and at sight of his leader's message his intuition stirred. Turning to the nearest lamp, he tore the envelope open and scanned the letter anxiously. It was written in Fraid's own clear, somewhat old-fashioned writing, and opened with a kindly rebuke for his desertion of him since the day of his speech. Then immediately, and with characteristic clearness, it opened up the subject nearer the writer's mind. Very slowly and attentively Loder read the letter, and with the extreme quiet that with him invariably covered emotion, he moved to the desk, wrote a note, and handed it to the waiting servant. As the man turned towards the door, he called him. Renwick, he said sharply, when you've given that letter to Mr. Frayd's servant, ask Mrs. Chilcote if she can spare me five minutes. When Renwick had gone and closed the door behind him, Loder paced the room with feverish activity. In one moment the aspect of life had been changed. Five minutes since, he had been glorying in the risk of a barely saved situation. Now that situation, with its merely social complications, had become a matter of small importance. His long striding steps had carried him to the fireplace, and his back was towards the door when at last the handle turned. He wheeled round to receive Eve's message. Then a look of pleased surprise crossed his face. It was Eve herself who stood in the doorway. Without hesitation, his lips parted. Eve, he said abruptly, I have had great news. Russia has shown her teeth at last. Two caravans belonging to a British trader were yesterday interfered with by a band of Cossacks. The affair occurred a couple of miles outside Meshed. The traders remonstrated, but the Russians made summary use of their advantage. Two Englishmen were wounded, and one of them has since died. Fraid has only now received the news which cannot be overrated. It gives the precise lever necessary for the big move at the reassembling. He spoke with great earnestness and unusual haste. As he finished, he took a step forward. But that's not all, he added. Fraid wants the great move set in motion by a great speech, and he has asked me to make it. For a moment Eve waited. She looked at him in silence and in that silence he read in her eyes the reflection of his own expression. "'And you?' she asked in a suppressed voice. "'What answer did you give?' He watched her for an instant, taking a strange pleasure in her flushed face and brilliantly eager eyes. Then the joy of conscious strength, the sense of opportunity regained, swept all other considerations out of sight. "'I accept it,' he said quickly. Could any man who was merely human have done otherwise? That was Loder's attitude and action on the night of his jeopardy and his success, and the following day found his mood unchanged. He was one of those rare individuals who never give a promise overnight and regret it in the morning. He was slow to move, but when he did the movement brushed all obstacles aside. In the first days of his usurpation, he had gone cautiously, half-fascinated, half-distrustful. Then the reality, the extraordinary tangibility of the position had gripped him when, matching himself for the first time with men of his own caliber, he had learned his real weight on the day of his protest against the Easter adjournment. With that knowledge had been born the dominant factor in his whole scheme, the overwhelming insistent desire to manifest his power that desire that is the salvation or the ruin of every strong man who has once realized his strength. Supremacy was the note to which his ambition reached. To trample out Chilcote's footmarks with his own had been his tacit instinct from the first. Now it rose paramount. It was the whole theory of creation, the survival of the fittest, the deep egotistical certainty that he was the better man and it was with this conviction that he entered on the vital period of his dual career. The imminent crisis and his own share in it absorbed him absolutely. In the weeks that followed his answer to Fraid's proposal he gave himself ungrudgingly to his work. He wrote, read, and planned with tireless energy. He frequently forgot to eat and slept only through sheer exhaustion. In the fullest sense of the word, he lived for the culminating hour that was to bring him failure or success. 
He seldom left Grosvenor Square in the days that followed, except to confer with his party. All his interest, all his relaxation even, lay in his work and what pertained to it. His strength was like a solid wall, his intelligence was sharp and keen as steel. The moment was his, and by sheer mastery of will he put other considerations out of sight. He forgot Chilcote and forgot Lillian, not because they escaped his memory, but because he chose to shut them from it. Of Eve he saw but little in this time of high pressure. When a man touches the core of his capacities, puts his best into the work that in his eyes stands paramount, there is little place for, or need of, woman. She comes before and after. She inspires, compensates, or completes. But the achievement, the creation, is man's alone. And all true women understand and yield to this unspoken precept. Eve watched the progress of his labor, and in the depth of her own heart the watching came nearer to actual living than any activity she had known. She was an onlooker, but an onlooker who stood, as it were, on the steps of the arena, who by a single forward movement could feel the sand under her feet, the breath of the battle on her face, and in this knowledge she rested satisfied. There were hours when Loder seemed scarcely conscious of her existence, but on those occasions she smiled in her serene way and went on waiting. She knew that each day, before the afternoon had passed, he would come into her sitting-room, his face thoughtful, his hands full of books or papers, and dropping into one of the comfortable, studious chairs, would ask laconically for tea. This was her moment of triumph and recompense, for the very unconsciousness of his coming doubled its value. He would sit for half an hour with a preoccupied glance, or with keen alert eyes fixed on the fire, while his ideas sorted themselves and fell into line. Sometimes he was silent for the whole half-hour, sometimes he commented to himself as he scanned his notes, but on other and rarer occasions he talked, speaking his thoughts and his theories aloud with the enjoyment of a man who knows himself fully in his depth, while Eve sipped her tea or stitched peacefully at a strip of embroidery. On these occasions she made a perfect listener. Here and there she encouraged him with an intelligent remark, but she never interrupted. She knew when to be silent and when to speak, when to merge her own individuality and when to make it felt. In these days of stress and preparation he came to her unconsciously for rest. He treated her as he might have treated a younger brother relying on her discretion, turning to her sometimes as by right for sympathy, comprehension, and friendship. Sometimes, as they sat silent in the richly colored home-like room, Eve would pause over her embroidery and let her thoughts spin momentarily forward, thin towards the point where, the brunt of his ordeal past, he must of necessity seek something beyond mere rest. But there her thoughts would inevitably break off and the blood flamed quickly into her cheek. Meanwhile Loder worked persistently. With each day that brought the crisis of Fraid's scheme nearer his activity increased, and with it an intensifying of the nervous strain. For if he had his hours of exultation he also had his hours of black apprehension. It is all very well to exercise a ghost by sheer strength of will but one has also to eliminate the idea that gave it existence. Lillian Astrup, with her unattested evidence and her ephemeral interest, gave him no real uneasiness. But Chilcote and Chilcote's possible summons were matters of graver consideration, and there were times when they loomed very dark and sinister. What if at the very moment of fulfillment? But invariably he snapped the thread of the supposition and turned with fiercer ardor to his work of preparation. And so the last morning of his probation dawned, and for the first time he breathed freely. He rose early on the day that was to witness his great effort, and dressed slowly. It was a splendid morning. The spirit of the spring seemed embodied in the air, in the pale blue sky, in the shafts of cool sunshine that danced from the mirror to the dressing-table, 
from the dressing-table to the pictures on the walls of Chilcote's vast room. Inconsequently, with its dancing, rose a memory of the distant past, a memory of long-forgotten days when, as a child, he had been bidden to watch the same sun perform the same fantastic evolutions. The sight and the thought stirred him curiously with an unlooked-for sense of youth. He drew himself together with an added touch of decision as he passed into the corridor, and as he walked downstairs he whistled a bar or two of an inspiring tune. In the morning-room Eve was already waiting. She looked up, colored, and smiled as he entered. Her face looked very fresh and young, and she wore a gown of the same pale blue that she had worn on his first coming. She looked up from an open letter as he came into the room, and the sun that fell through the window caught her in a shaft of light, intensifying her blue eyes, her blue gown, and the bunch of violets fastened in her belt. To Loder, still under the influence of early memories, she seemed the embodiment of some youthful ideal, something lost, sought for, and found again. Realization of his feeling for her almost came to him as he stood there looking at her. It hovered about him, it tipped him, as it were, with its wings. Then it rose again and soared away. Men like him, men keen to grasp an opening where their careers are concerned, and tenacious to hold it when once grasped, are frequently the last to look into their own hearts. He glanced at Eve, he acknowledged the stir of his feeling, but he made no attempt to define its cause. He could no more have given reason for his sensations than he could have told the precise date upon which, coming downstairs at eight o'clock, he had first found her waiting breakfast for him. The time when all such incidents were to stand out, each to a nicety in its appointed place, had not yet arrived. For the moment his youth had returned to him. He possessed the knowledge of work done, the sense of present companionship in a world of agreeable things, above all, the steady, quiet conviction of his own capacity. All these things came to him in the moment of his entering the room, greeting Eve, and passing to the breakfast-table. Then, while his eyes still rested contentedly on the pleasant array of china and silver, while his senses were still alive to the fresh, earthly scent of Eve's violets, the blow so long dreaded, so slow in coming, fell with accumulated force. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 The letter through which the blow fell was not voluminous. It was written on cheap paper in a disguised hand, and the contents covered only half a page. Loder read it slowly, mentally articulating every word. Then he laid it down, and as he did so he caught Eve's eyes raised in concern. Again he saw something of his own feelings reflected in her face, and the shock braced him. He picked up the letter, tearing it into strips. "'I must go out,' he said slowly. "'I must go now, at once.' His voice was hard. Eve's surprised, concerned eyes still searched his. "'Now, at once,' she repeated. "'Now, without breakfast?' "'I'm not hungry.' He rose from his seat and carrying the slips of papers across the room, dropped them into the fire. He did it not so much from caution as from an imperative wish to do something, to move, if only across the room. Eve's glance followed him. "'Is it bad news?' she asked anxiously. It was unlike her to be insistent, but she was moved to the impulse by the peculiarity of the moment. "'No,' he said shortly, "'it's business.' This was written yesterday. I should have got it last night. Her eyes widened. But nobody does business at eight in the morning, she began in astonishment. Then she suddenly broke off. Without apology or farewell, Loder had left the fireplace and walked out of the room. He passed through the hall hurriedly, picked up a hat as he went, and reaching the pavement outside he went straight forward until Grosvenor Square was left behind then he ran. At the risk of reputation, at the loss of dignity, he ran until he saw a cab. Hailing it he sprang inside, and, as the cabman whipped up and the horse responded to the call, he realized for the first time the full significance of what had occurred. 
realization like the need for action came to him slowly but when it came it was with terrible lucidity he did not swear as he leaned back in his seat mechanically watching the stream of men on their way to business the belated cars of green produce blocking the way between the strand and covent garden he had no use for oaths his feelings lay deeper than mere words but his mouth was sternly set and his eyes looked cold outside the law courts he dismissed his cab and walked forward to clifford's inn as he passed through the familiar entrance a chill fell on him in the clear early light it seemed more than ever a place of dead hopes dead enterprises dead ambitions in the onward march of life it had been forgotten the very air had a breath of unfulfillment he crossed the court rapidly but his mouth set itself afresh as he passed through the doorway of his own house and crossed the bare hall as he mounted the well-known stairs he received his first indication of life in the appearance of a cat from the second-floor rooms at the sight of him the animal came forward rubbed demonstratively against his legs and with affectionate persistence followed him upstairs outside his door he paused on the ground stood the usual morning can of milk evidence that chilcote was not yet awake or that like himself he had no appetite for breakfast he smiled ironically as the idea struck him but it was a smile that stiffened rather than relaxed his lips then he drew out the duplicate key he always carried and inserting it quietly opened the door a close unpleasant smell greeted him as he entered the small passage that divided the bed and sitting-rooms a smell of whiskey mingling with the odor of stale smoke with a quick gesture he pushed open the bedroom door then on the threshold he paused a look of contempt and repulsion passing over his face in his first glance he scarcely grasped the details of the scene for the half-drawn curtains kept the light dim but as his eyes grew accustomed to the obscurity he gathered their significance the room had a sleepless jaded air the room that under his own occupation had shown a rigid almost monastic severity the plain dressing-table was littered with cigarette ends and marked with black and tawny patches where the tobacco had been left to burn itself out on one corner of the table a carafe of water and a whiskey decanter rested one against the other as if for support and at the other end an overturned tumbler lay in a pool of liquid the whole effect was sickly and nauseating his glance turned involuntarily to the bed and there he halted on the hard narrow mattress from which the sheets and blankets had fallen in a disordered heap lay chilcote he was fully dressed in a shabby tweed suit of loaders his collar was open his lip and chin unshaven one hand was limply grasping the pillow while the other hung out over the side of the bed his face pale almost earthy in hue might have been a mask save for the slight convulsive spasms that crossed it from time to time and corresponded with the faint shivering starts that passed at intervals over his whole body to complete his repellent appearance a lock of hair had fallen loose and lay black and damp across his forehead loder stood for a space shocked and spellbound by the sight even in the ghastly disarray the likeness the extraordinary sinister likeness that had become the pivot upon which he himself revolved struck him like a blow the man who lay there was himself bound to him by some subtle, inexplicable tie of similarity. As the idea touched him, he turned aside and stepped quickly to the dressing-table. There, with unnecessary energy, he flung back the curtains and threw the window wide. Then again he turned towards the bed. He had one dominant impulse, to waken Chilcote, to be free of the repulsive inert presence that chilled him with so personal a horror leaning over the bed he caught the shoulder nearest to him and shook it it was not the moment for niceties and his gesture was rough at his first touch chilcote made no response his brain dulled by indulgence in his vice had become a laggard in conveying sensations but at last as the pressure on his shoulder increased his nervous system seemed suddenly to jar him into consciousness a long shudder shook him he half lifted himself and then dropped back upon the pillow oh he exclaimed in a trembling breath oh 
The sound seemed drawn from him by compulsion. Its uncanny tone chilled Loder anew. "'Wake up, man!' he said suddenly. "'Wake up! It's I, Loder!' Again the other shuddered. Then he turned quickly and nervously. "'Loder?' he said doubtfully. "'Loder!' Then his face changed. "'Good God!' he exclaimed. "'What a relief!' The words were so intense, so spontaneous and unexpected, that Loder took a step back. Chilcote laughed discordantly and lifted a shaky hand to protect his eyes from the light. "'It's... it's all right, Loder. It's all right. It's only that I... that I had a beastly dream. But for heaven's sakes, shut that window!' He shivered involuntarily and pushed the lock of damp hair from his forehead with a weak touch of his old irritability. In silence Loder moved back to the window and shut it. He was affected more than he would own even to himself by the obvious change in Chilcote. He had seen him moody, restless, nervously excited, but never before had he seen him entirely demoralized. With a dull feeling of impotence and disgust he stood by the closed window looking unseeingly at the roofs of the opposite houses. But Chilcote had followed his movements restlessly, and now as he watched him a flicker of excitement crossed his face. "'God, Loder,' he said again, "'twas a relief to see you. I dreamed I was in hell, a horrible hell worse than the one they preach about.' He laughed to reassure himself, but his voice shook pitiably. Loder, who had come to fight, stood silent and inert. "'It was horrible, beastly,' Chilcote went on. "'There was no fire and brimstone, but there was something worse.' It was a great ironic scheme of punishment by which every man was chained to his own vice, by which the thing he had gone to pieces over, instead of being denied him, was made compulsory. You can't imagine it. He shivered nervously, and his voice rose. Fancy being satiated beyond the limit of satiety, being driven and dogged by the thing you had run after all your life. He paused excitedly, and in the pause Loder found resolution. He shut his ears to the panic in Chilcote's voice. He closed his consciousness to the sight of his shaken face. With a surge of determination he rallied his theories. After all, he had himself and his own interest to claim his thought. At the moment Chilcote was a wreck, with no desire towards rehabilitation. But there was no guarantee that in an hour or two he might not have regained control over himself and with it the inclination that had prompted his letter of the day before. No, he had himself to look to. The survival of the fittest was the true, the only principle. Chilcote had had intellect, education, opportunity, and Chilcote had deliberately cast them aside. Fortifying himself in the knowledge, he turned from the window and moved slowly back to the bed. Look here, he began. You wrote for me last night. His voice was hard. He had come to fight. Chilcote glanced up quickly. His mouth was drawn, and there was a new anxiety in his eyes. Loder, he exclaimed quickly. Loder, come here. Come nearer. Reluctantly, Loder obeyed. Stepping closer to the side of the bed, he bent down. The other put up his hand and caught his arm. His fingers trembled and jerked. I say, Loder, he said suddenly. I, I've had such a beastly night my nerves, you know. With a quick involuntary disgust, Loder drew back. Don't you think we might shove that aside? he asked. But Chilcote's gaze had wandered from his face and strayed to the dressing-table. There it moved feverishly from one object to another. Loder, he exclaimed, do you see? Can you see if there's a tube of tabloids on the mantel-shelf or on the dressing-table? He lifted himself nervously on his elbow, and his eyes wandered uneasily about the room. I... I had a beastly night. My nerves are horribly jarred, and I thought... I think... He stopped. With his increasing consciousness his nervous collapse became more marked. At the first moment of waking the relief of an unexpected presence had surmounted everything else. But now, as one by one his faculties stirred, his wretched condition became patent. With a new sense of perturbation, Loder made his next attack. "'Chilcote!' he began sternly. But again Chilcote caught his arm, plucking at the coat-sleeve. "'Where is it?' he said. "'Where is the tube of tabloids, the sedative, 
I'm, I'm obliged to take something when my nerves go wrong. In his weakness and nervous tremor, he forgot that Loder was the sharer of his secret. Even in his extremity, his fear of detection clung to him limply. The lies that had become second nature slipped from him without effort. Then suddenly a fresh panic seized him. His fingers tightened spasmodically. His eyes ceased to rove about the room and settled on his companion's face. "'Can you see it, Loder?' he cried. "'I can't. The light's in my eyes. Can you see it? Can you see the tube?' He lifted himself higher, an agony of apprehension in his face. Loder pushed him back upon the pillow. He was striving hard to keep his own mind cool, to steer his own course straight through the chaos that confronted him. "'Chilcote,' he began once more, "'you sent for me last night, and I came the first thing this morning to tell you—' But there he stopped. With an excitement that lent him strength, Chilcote pushed aside his hands. "'God!' he said suddenly. "'Suppose t'was lost! Suppose t'was gone!' The imaginary possibility gripped him. He sat up, his face livid, drops of perspiration showing on his forehead, his whole shattered system trembling before his thought. At the sight, Loder set his lips. "'The tube is on the mantel-shelf,' he said in a cold, abrupt voice. A groan of relief fell from Chilcote, and the muscles of his face relaxed. For a moment he lay back with closed eyes. Then the desire that tortured him stirred afresh. He lifted his eyelids and looked at his companion. "'Hand it to me,' he said quickly. "'Give it to me. Give it to me, Loder. Quick as you can. There's a glass on the table and some whiskey and some water. The tabloids dissolve, you know.' In his new excitement he held out his hand. But Loder stayed motionless. He had come to fight, to demand, to plead, if need be, for the one hour for which he had lived, the hour that was to satisfy all labor, all endeavor, all ambition. With dogged persistence he made one more essay. Chilcote, you wrote last night to recall me. Once again he paused, checked by a new interruption. Sitting up again, Chilcote struck out suddenly with his left hand in a rush of his old irritability. Damn you, he cried suddenly, what are you talking about? Look at me! Get me the stuff! I tell you it's imperative!" In his excitement his breath failed and he coughed. At the effort his whole frame was shaken. Loder walked to the dressing-table, then back to the bed. A deep agitation was at work in his mind. Again Chilcote's lips parted. "'Loder,' he said faintly. "'Loder, I must! I must have it! It's imperative!' Once more he attempted to lift himself but the effort was futile. Again Loder turned away. Loder, for God's sake! With a fierce gesture the other turned on him. Good heavens, man, he began. Then, unaccountably, his voice changed. The suggestion that had been hovering in his mind took sudden and definite shape. All right, he said in a lower voice. All right, stay as you are. He crossed to where the empty tumbler stood and hastily mixed the whiskey and water. Then, crossing to the mantelpiece where lay the small glass tube containing the tightly packed tabloids, he paused and glanced once more towards the bed. How many, he said laconically. Chilcote lifted his head. His face was pitiably drawn, but the feverish brightness in his eyes had increased. Five, he said sharply. Five. Do you hear, Loder? Five? Involuntarily, Loder lowered the hand that held the tube. From previous confidences of Chilcote's he knew the amount of morphia contained in each tabloid and realized that five tabloids, if not an absolutely dangerous, was at least an excessive dose, even for one accustomed to the drug. For a moment his resolution failed. Then the dominant note of his nature, the unconscious fundamental egotism on which his character was based, asserted itself beyond denial it might be reprehensible. It might even be criminal to accede to such a request made by a man in such a condition of body and mind. Yet the laws of the universe demanded self-assertion, prompted every human mind to desire, to grasp, and to hold. With a perception swifter than any he had experienced, he realized the certain respite to be gained by yielding to his impulse. 
he looked at Chilcote with his haggard, anxious expression, his eager, restless eyes, and a vision of himself followed sharp upon his glare, a vision of the untiring labor of the past ten days, of the slowly kindling ambition, of the supremacy all but gained. Then, as the picture completed itself, he lifted his hand with an abrupt movement and dropped the five tabloids, one after another, into the glass. End of chapter 24. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.